All right. I hope you are too. But, you know, the Lord of the universe, even though he is so great and his concerns are so great, the greatest thing about him is his concern for you and that he would care enough to plan this day to meet you and to speak to you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your way of being present even while you are empowering the universe. Your love for us, it's so personal because you are personal. And we ask, Father, that in the name of the Son, your spirit would be upon us this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me, if you have a Bible, uh, whether it's on your phone or uh, in your hand or in your head, uh, if you can open to Mark chapter 11, we'll get there in just a minute. Um, I want to start a series, which, uh, Stacy, I just, ex- in my yesterday, I decided to expand this to four times uh, because I don't want to cram too much into any one. So, rather relax a little bit. Um, my day job, by the way, is uh, I'm a professor of theology, so I'm used to three-hour class sessions. Uh, so, um, uh, I-, I can go on and on. I, ho- I won't do that today. Um, <clears throat> But the title of this part of the series is Robbing God at Church. Has anybody been robbed? I don't really like it. I don't, I don't care for it at all. I remember I got robbed at church once. Went out to my car. Somebody had gotten into my car. And this was a Honda Prelude. And the console, they had stolen the console out because I had my change in there. I wish they had just taken the change because that console cost a fortune to replace it. And um, I hope you don't get robbed today at church, okay? But more importantly, the biblical perspective is of God meeting here with us. There's something he's looking for, and I don't want him to leave disappointed. I don't want him to leave robbed. Now, that notion doesn't come from me. That's a biblical notion. It comes from the prophets in the Old Testament who are always talking in a very salty, convicting kind of way. It all has to do with the question, why do people come to church? Why do people come to church? Hebrews 10.24 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. When we gather together, we put courage into each other's heart. You know, with any, any interaction with anybody, parents especially, Your job is to put courage in the child's heart, not take it out. And when we really connect with each other, it's a way of putting courage into our heart. And that's certainly why people come to church. Um, And when we come, we're looking for four things. And when we leave, we check our grocery bag to see how many of the four we got. And if they're not a thing in the grocery bag, we feel robbed. And any church, any fellowship that meets those four needs, um, you'll never have to worry. People will keep coming, and they'll keep talking to other people about them coming uh, as well. Um, when Jesus was talking about uh, gathering for worship, uh, he said, he actually does a mashup of two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And when he mashes it together, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making a den of robbers. You know, when Jesus talks like that, it's not a wonder he gets crucified. It's a wonder he doesn't get crucified sooner. You know what I mean? 
um, insulting people at church. Um, but what's interesting, and this is really important, we'll talk more about it in two weeks, but every word is important. And if you drop a word, you drop something important. And so what he says is, my house. Don't drop the personal pronoun. When Jesus walked into the temple, he came in like a boss. He came in like an owner. This is my father's house. I would love to have gone to church with Jesus. Because he says, zeal for my the house will consume me. Have you ever worshipped with somebody who had zeal? You know? Their power is never out. They're on 220, maybe 440. Their zeal consumes them. And it's just kind of fun to be around them because stuff happens. That's why the disciples always wanted to show up at church when Jesus was there. Uh, and that's why we want to be here. Now, there is an, an analyst, a statistician of church life. His name is George Barna and his team. They found out that unchurched people, that is people who don't come to church, they will come, most of them will come if invited in the right way. They also found out that when an unchurched person comes for the first time, they make up their mind in the first 11 minutes if they're ever coming back. So that hospitality in the first 11 minutes, that um, that ability to turn a stranger into a friend is very, very important. Um, so what are the reasons that people come to church? What What is the reason the Lord comes to church? Um, and he says, zeal for my house will consume me. But he also says this, and this is in uh, Mark. And this is one of the reasons I like it so much. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, I want to read it in the story context. So this is in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 20. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he taught. And he said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and sought a way to destroy him. They didn't just want to just kill him. They wanted to destroy him. For they feared him because all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. It really wasn't safe at this time for them to stay in the city. Um, but now this, this phrase, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, again, quoting from uh, the Old Testament. One of the reasons I like Mark's version of this story is because of the last couple of words in that verse, and I'll get to that in a minute, but let me just say this. Uh, when you read the four Gospels, these four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't read the same. Now you may say, well, wait a minute, does that mean there's a contradiction? No. If, if you're studying law or no law, and you hear a witness, and you hear three or four witnesses, if they all tell the same story, it's it's contrived. They all tell it from their perspective. They tell it from their their experience of that. And uh, each of the four Gospels has the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Temple cleansing must be important. 
Jesus' authority over the house and worship is important. So they include that. They, you know, they include the feeding of the 5,000. Everybody's interested in food. Um, they don't include the birth of Jesus. Mark doesn't include that in his. I'm not saying that's not important. I'm just saying it's interesting what all four Gospels have. They, of course, half of all the Gospels is about the last week in Jesus' life. Very strange um, way to write a biography. But they're putting the most emphasis on the most important thing, Christ's death for our sins. Um, but back to this. My house should be called a house of prayer for the nations. So the word prayer is the basic Greek word for worship. It means to kiss toward. Now, the old English version of worship is worth-ship, to count the worth. The reason people come to church is to worship, is to look up. I mean, we spend our whole week looking at the screen, looking at the sink, looking down. And there's something wonderful when we can look up and take a fresh measure of the Lord God, to measure him, to see how big he is. Now, all of us come with baggage. All of us come with problems and troubles and illnesses. That comes with us. Now, the question is, which is bigger? My problems, my diseases, or my God? And that's why worship's so important. If my God is bigger than my problems, I've got some solutions. I've got room for hope. Um, now, I have a huge measuring tape, but I discovered that most of the things I measure take more tape than I have. And the wonderful experience in worship is in when you, you discover God is bigger than your problem. Does it make problems disappear like poof? But it puts them right size. This God can handle this problem and get me through and make things happen. That's the point of worship, to discover how big, how great is your God. Now let me, let me do my professorial thing for just a minute, okay? Um, what makes this God different? There's a, there's a theme, there's a melody. I love that line in that song we just sang, that my melody is my weapon. And there's a melody in the scripture. And this melody is this. It's a theological, it's a worship melody, and it's this. There's no God like him. You see that with me? There's no God like him. Or say it this way. There's no God like you. Well, how would that be the case? Let me tell you a few things about this God, about him, as a, as a kind of a moment of praise. First off, he is spirit. Now you say, well, that means I can't see him. Now what it really means is, you can't put him in one locale and not another. If he is spirit, he's omnipresent. He's wherever he wants to be. And believe me, he wants to be with you. Um, his spirit means he has no location. Now, in places all over the world, there's an undis- there's a thinking, uh, uh, a worldview that gods are localized. And so if I cross this territory, I need to learn the God in that territory. There are value systems. I need to learn the, this, you know, when I cross the border. All of that happens. Well, with this God, he's everywhere. So I can just have one set of values, one set of commandments. I don't have to keep changing it. Uh, most of us as teenagers, we and, and if we were involved in church at all, we had two sets of friends. We had church friends and we had the other friends. 
And if you have two sets of friends, you have two sets of values. If you have two sets of values, you have two gods. You're a polytheist. One God, who is spirit, who is everywhere, makes us monotheists. It enables us to have integrity, to be the same person, to have the same face, wherever I go, whoever I meet. Uh, I remember working in India, and you know, you hear, um, and I thought, ah, they've got a great um, but we have three. Omniscient, omnipresent, you know, uh, um, you know, just just meditate on those. Um, he is one. The most important verse for a Hebrew is Deuteronomy six four, Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Now there are two words in Hebrew for one. One of them means a unit of one. Another means a communion, a union. Not a unity, but a union. And that's the word that's used in this text. It's kind of like a clue, a hint, that this oneness of God is unique. Now that really gets unpacked clearly in the, Old, in the New Testament. Uh, when we meet Jesus, God's Son, and to know Jesus is to hear about the Father. And to hear about the Father is to experience the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. One and three. I know that's a mystery, but it's the way God rolls. Why should I be able to understand this gigantic God, Father, Son, and Spirit? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Oneness. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 4, this word one comes up eight times in a row. Because we worship this God, it makes us like this God, so we are one together. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And everybody on planet Earth is hungering to belong somewhere that you can't be divorced out of. Now, I'll be honest with you. One of the reasons I gave my life to Christ is because uh, I swim in a sea of divorce in my family. I can't even keep up with my aunt's new name. Um, and my parents' divorce. You know. Anyway, to get a part of a family that you can't be divorced out of is awesome for me. Um, I'm one. And God will not let me go. He won't let me go. Um, he is one. He makes and keeps covenant. Uh, ladies, there are some men out here that are going to ask you to marry them on the first date. Men, don't do that. That's sort of like the Lord. He always only goes steady. He doesn't date around. He wants to get married. That's what this word covenant. You know, half of the Bible, the first covenant, second half, new covenant. Why is that? Because God is always making and keeping covenant. He doesn't just make covenant. He keeps it. He keeps covenant with you. And as you and I roll in his love, it's a transformative thing. And we become transforming in the world as well. Um, God is high. But he's also low. He's got two addresses. He lives in a gated community in heaven. High and holy. But the scripture also says he dwells with the lowly and the brokenhearted. God has two addresses. And you can call upon him whichever address you need today. He is good, he's great, he's transcendent, and he's imminent. He's high, he's low. I love in Exodus 33 when... God says, I'm going to show you, and this is God to his friend Moses, I'm going to show you all my 
goodness. Now, would you rather have a God who is good or a God who is great? Well, the problem is this God, the God and Father of Jesus Christ, is good and great. Now, what good is his goodness if he doesn't have greatness to back it up? And so when he shows him all his goodness, my Moses' response is, my goodness, you are great too. God is good and he is great all the time. Finally, he's holy. Holy means he's just and he's gracious. He's just and he's gracious. There's judgment and there is hope. That's the way God is. That's the way God rolls. He is a just God. He will judge the living and the dead. He does keep the books. He will open the books. But there's another book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name, by God's grace in Christ, is written in that book, you are welcomed into his eternal kingdom. But the books will be opened. And God is just, but he's also gracious. Just and gracious. You know the reason people stop believing in God? According to J.B. Phillips, it's because their God is too small. The God we want is bigger than we thought. And tomorrow we'll even discover even how much bigger he was than he was for us today. There's no end to him. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. That's what worship is about. My house shall be called a house of worship. And then, and I just love this about Mark, all the other, all, you know, John, Matthew, and Luke, they have, my house will be called a house of worship. So in the other three accounts, they cut the verse right there. But Mark, he reminds us that every word is important. He says, for the nations. For the nations. Um, there's a, uh, when you go to Jerusalem, and I hope, you know, maybe, maybe you grow up there, I don't know, but if you get a chance to go there, you know, one of the places you want to go is the, the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is, is, is part of the original, at least in Jesus' day, um, the Temple Wall. And, you know, it's, it's high up, what's still there. But you'll notice that these huge stones that they built it with are, you know, they're basically as big as a, uh, you know, Ford Flex, a big SUV, solid stone. And they push those off and they crash through solid stones just below that. That's how heavy these things are. Gigantic property. And if you've ever seen, you know, look at Google Earth or looked at the Dome of the Rock, uh, the, the, the mosque that's there now right in the center of it, because that's the, 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 uh, the tradition is that's where, uh, Muhammad ascended. Um, but it's, it's like this little thing in the midst of the giant courtyard. And it's in that courtyard that I think Jesus cleansed the temple, the temple area. Because there's a tendency for all of us to let things slide in our lives and to be sloppy about the way we do things and to try to find the most convenient way. And so when Jesus came to worship, there was a huge distraction because there had been mission creepage onto the worship space. Through the gates, um, 
you know, the people that were changing money because you could only use drachmas there in the temple. Okay, couldn't bring your dollars, your pesos, your euro dollars. You can't bring that. You had to bring drachmas. They had the money changing right there. Well, that's a little noisy because you got all these coins going on. So the money changers were there at whatever gate you came in. Um, people need to buy animals for sacrifice. So they had sheep. They had p- pigeons. Uh, you know, they had birds. Uh, so it could be a very noisy proposition. In fact, one day they said there were 30,000 sheep inside the property, inside the temple. Now, not the temple building itself, because that's a much smaller unit in, you know, that you have to go through gates to get into that. Um, and Jesus was there, and as long as you were Jewish, a Jewish man in particular, you could go through the next gate and get into the, the temple of uh, uh, the area of for Hebrew men, and there was none of that noise in there. None of that noise in there. Um, but just everyday people and women, you could only get into this space. And it was full, it, it was like, um, you know, uh, Walmart, you know, on, on Black Friday. You know, is that crowded, that noisy? And Jesus came to worship. How can you worship in all that noise? And so he turns over the tables. You know, he grabs some rope to get the sheep out and get the birds out. I mean, for a moment there, there must have been a lot more noise. But anyway, he cleanses that temple so it can be for worship. And don't you ever feel like that yourself? I'm sorry, you know, Scripture says you are the temple of God. God's spirit dwells in you. Don't you feel like you need to do some house cleaning sometimes? So that your life isn't so messy and there's space to go from rush to hush and, and to hear God's presence. And that's what he does. Now, five years, about five years after Jesus cleansed the temple, there was another man who came. Dark-skinned man, Nihilitic, um, the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, he was a man of high standing in his nation. Um, he was the treasurer for his queen, and I think he probably always had it on his heart. If only I could go visit the temple. I'd like to go visit the temple. I, I've seen and heard about this, this God, the God of the Hebrews, and I want to go there, and I want to worship there. And so he, he gets into this open area, which anybody can go in there, but then he goes up to the next gate and he can't get in there because he's not a Jew and he's not a Jewish man and also he's a eunuch. And so he's barred from entering that space. And um, his consolation prize, according to Acts chapter 9, is he went to a table and bought some scripture. And it was on a roll, so he bought, you know, couple of feet or I don't know how they how they sold it exactly but in God's providence you know just like today God wants to meet us here in God's providence the part he got was Isaiah 52 53 I personally there's speculation on the spot here I'm a professional so I can speculate um, was that it might have gone through 56 because in chapter 56 it starts talking about eunuchs and women with no children. It talks about people who, who can feel socially and culturally marginalized. And it says when the Messiah comes, 
those people on the margins, their lives matter. And they will be welcomed into the Holy of Holies. And when he saw that, I think that's when he turns to Philip and he said, Hey, look, there's some water. Can I be baptized right now? I want to follow this Messiah, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. And I think Jesus, in some way, cleansed the temple that day so there was space for the Ethiopian. Um, because his life mattered, just like yours does, just like mine does, to the Lord. Because he wants the nations. It's not enough just to have the Jews, as much as he loves them. Now, the gospel is supposed to first go to the Jews, but then to the nations. Always on the nations. Some of you know the verse in Psalm 46 where it says, Be still, be quiet, and hear the Lord. And we almost always cut it off right there. That's 46, uh, 6 or 7 or 8. But it says right after that, I will be exalted among the nations. If you really listen to the Lord, he's concerned about the nations. He's concerned about the distinctions we make so that those people that he loves don't get to come into the Holy of Holies. We don't treat them like brothers and sisters. We don't treat them like people from whom we will not be separated. We don't treat them as people for whom God gave his life. Um, worship. Uh, is your God too small? Now, in 1991, a friend of mine, Eddie Pate, is pastor of a church up in Barstow. Anybody been to Barstow? Anybody stop? I thought Barstow is the easiest place in the world to get to heaven from because there's nothing else to do. Um, the people who end up in Barstow are the people who wanted to get to Las Vegas but didn't have enough money or made it to Las Vegas, and when they came back, they didn't have enough money to get gas, so they're stuck in Barstow. That's not really true. Barstow's a wonderful place. They have war games out there because military from all over the world come to train in desert kind of warfare. The geology there is amazing. Oh, they do have 20,000 earthquakes a year, but other than that, it's a great place to live. Okay. Eddie Pace, the pastor at First Baptist Church, Barstow. As he's worshiping, you know, and, and he feels, and his wife too, his, they begin to feel that God is calling them to leave the church and go to the nations. But not just the nations, a particular nation where... Um, there had no been no witness out of our church to Sudan, Sudan, not an easy place, and so they, this 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 sense of urgency, the sense of call, continued, and finally he just shares it with the church. Now this church loves this pastor, and they say to Pastor Pete, "No, that can't be right. That can't be right. Um, you need to stay here. We love you." Look at the things God is doing. You need to stay. And so he, he just took that message. Okay, so that's a Sunday. On Monday, this car drives up to the parking lot. Dark-skinned man gets out, goes into the church office and introduces himself and said, I'd like to talk to the pastor uh, about how to be saved, about salvation, about how to follow Christ. He had an interesting accent. And uh, she said, well, where are you from? 
He said, I'm from Sudan. And, you know, she could not go to the pastor fast, but there's a man from Sudan who'd like to talk to you. So he comes in, and while the pastor is helping him find the scriptures and look at the way of embracing Christ and turning from your, your sin to live for him, the secretary's calling everybody in the church. There's a man from Sudan in the pastor's office. There's a man from Sudan. The church took that as a sign from the Lord that he was calling the pastor to the nations. Um, that's God's heart for the nations. That's God's hearts for you. God has a plan for you. He's made you with your skills, your abilities, your passions, honestly, your hurts, for his calling on your life in Christ. He doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste anyone. Every life really is significant in his plan, his sovereignty. So, what can we do then? Well, first off, we can be worship agents. When I come to this place, I don't want to come with grudges undealt with, with, with um, transgressions unconfessed. I don't want to come here except I can be a worship agent. I want to sing these songs. I want to pray these prayers. I want to hear this word. I want to hang on the words of Jesus. Don't you? So be a worship agent. Don't come half-hearted. Come wholehearted. Um, be filled with the Spirit, the Scripture says. And refills are free. Ask the Lord to fill you and guide you. Also remember, sometimes during the service, um, the prayer, the scripture, the, the message, the songs, it may have tenderized somebody's heart. They came with a hard heart, and now they have a tenderized heart, and they may want to talk to you about it. So don't get too busy as soon as church dismisses. Be sensitive to God's leadership to people that are here. Um, nothing should have more priority than that because eternity is involved. Um, I know that also if you experience God's presence um, and his holiness, you may also experience your unholiness in some area in your life. Um, don't squish that down. Deal with it. Take care of it. Make up for it. Whenever there is forgiveness, there should may be also restitution where you need to go to somebody and reconcile. That's holy business. That's worship. That's obedience. Why do people come to church? Come to worship. Next week, uh, we'll talk about the second thing people come for. They come for inspiration. They come for a word. And so we're going to look at that very carefully together because we make such a big deal of God's word uh, in this church and why that is. And then the week after, you know, the next time after that, I'm an every other Sunday guy because of class I have in Northern California. Um, we'll, we'll look at the other two things, two reasons why God comes to church. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for walking into the temple 2,000 years ago and acting like what you were. It's your Father's house. Your Father's house. And thank you, Lord, for the times you've walked into our house and cleansed us so that we could know you and listen to you. Lord, for anybody that's here uh, that um, you've met with them in a unique way, 
uh, Lord, may they surrender. May they ask for forgiveness. May they say yes to your call on their life to the nations. Um, And, Lord, continue to do the thing you do. Make us one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.